Assalamualaikum everyone and welcome back to the lowdown. My name's Bill. Um, today we're going to be discussing something uh, which is a field that I know quite well. It's going to be discussing personal injury and I'm going to be explaining the process of personal injury claims and, and how to deal with it. Today I'll be particularly interested in discussing road traffic accidents and what to do if you are involved in one. Again, just like last week, um, all the information I share with you today, it's up to you what you want to do with that information. It's at your own discretion. Um, I don't advocate any kind of dishonesty or any kind of fraudulent claims. It's just simply to make you aware of your rights and the process of making a claim. Now, if you are learning to drive or you do drive, at some point uh, during your driving career, you might get involved in a road traffic accident. Now, this might be your fault, might be the fault of the other person, uh, you, you both might be to blame. But I believe the best way to explain and understand the process of these things is to have a scenario-based approach. So, inshallah, that's what we'll do. We'll go through a quick little scenario and hopefully it will give everyone an understanding of, of what needs to be proven in order for you to make a personal injury claim. So... If we can just imagine this, that we're on a countryside road and there's nobody else on the road, these roads tend to be quite narrow and you're alone in your car driving straight. Now, a car approaches from the other side and um, the car on the other side tries to avoid a pothole and swerves in your direction into your into your lane almost. And what ends up happening is, is that car collides with you and your vehicles are now blocking both routes. So you get out of the vehicle, uh, you approach the person who's crashed into you. Let's uh, hypothetically say this person's called Mr. X, and uh, he's also alone in this vehicle, and he gives you the, the full admission. He says to you, look, it's my fault. You know, there was a pothole there. I tried to swerve, couldn't swerve in time, and, um, you know, admits it all. So you currently in a state of shock, you know, you've not been in an accident before, you don't know what to do. Um, you know, you, you heard somebody maybe saying that you should exchange numbers. So you do that, you take his number, he takes yours, and he tells you, look, I'll pay for it privately, don't go through your insurance. This is really quite a typical scenario of, of what happens. So after the accident, you go home and uh, you're still in shock, you still have your uh, adrenaline going so really the next let's say the day after you start to feel pain maybe you wouldn't have felt it there because of the adrenaline start to feel pain typically hypothetically let's say you feel whiplash like symptoms now for anyone who doesn't know what whiplash is it is pain in the usually the neck back and shoulders and it tends to be soft tissue pain so you want your car repaired uh, you text this guy and he doesn't respond. Uh, you try calling him, he doesn't answer your phone calls. So what do you do? And the first point, uh, well, your first point of protocol should be contact your insurance. Now, many people don't know this, but I think a lot of people should realize that under the terms of your policy and by law, whenever you have an accident, even if it's not your fault, you have to update your insurance company. And this is just so they can keep track on on the condition of your vehicle and on track of what's going on within your policy. Um, 
So, yeah, you contact your insurance company. Um, you know, you want your car repaired because at this stage, if your car's damaged, and let's say there's a a screw loose on a bumper, if you're going seventy miles an hour on a bumper and you hit a a bump or a pothole and that loosens the bumper even more, your bumper could come off and it could be fatal to somebody else. It, you know, it could be fatal to yourself. So you want to get your car repaired as soon as possible. That's that's the first step. So you ring your insurance company and, uh, you know, that's what your insurance is there for. They're there to, to pay for any kind of damage to your car, whether it's your fault or not. And your insurance company tells you that you have an excess to pay. Now, excesses can vary. They usually, in my um, opinion, I've seen excesses between 50 and 500 pound. Some companies have 3,000 pound. Best to check your own insurance policy to see what your excess is and um you know if you're not happy with it you can speak to them and uh, they might be able to to make it a lower excess but you ring them you tell them everything that's happened how the guy admitted at the scene that he's switched lanes and uh, he's admitted that it's his fault your confidence your insurance company's confidence that you know it's not your fault and uh, they take your word for it they agree to then take your car to a garage <clears throat> and um, during that time that your car is being taken to a garage to get repaired, they will check with Mr. X's insurance company to see what the allegations are or what his vision of events are as to what happened. Now, again, during this time, let's say your injuries start to worsen and you take a few painkillers just to keep yourself right, just to just so you're not you're not in too much pain. Now, two days later, you get a call from your insurance company and they say Mr. X is blaming you for the accident and they have a witness who saw the whole thing. And you're shocked. You can't believe it. You know there was no witnesses. It's the middle of a countryside road um, and Mr. X is also saying he had two passengers in the car. You're frustrated. How could this guy lie and how could he have evidence which proves that what actually happened was factually that was factually correct. Now, on the, in the reality of it, it all comes down to how much evidence uh, each party has in order to prove their claim. So your insurance company tells you that they accept fault for the accident because the evidence points towards you being in the wrong and not, not Mr. X. And as a result, Mr. X and his passengers make a personal injury claim for money. Now, what does this mean for, for you? What's the effects of this? Well, first of all, your insurance premium will be raised. So you'll be ending up paying more per year for your for your insurance. Secondly, you, you won't be able to claim for your personal injuries. So the pain that you start to feel in your, in your neck or back or shoulders, you won't be able to claim for that. Uh, you might lose your no claims bonus. I, I'm aware of... Um, certain companies that allow you to protect your uh, no claims bonus and um, sometimes it's not about the monetary loss but uh, sometimes it's just a principled approach to you taking blame for something which wasn't your fault so if we rewind back and we look at when the accident happened um, what could you have done to prevent all of this from happening from from the 
additional passengers he's put in to him blaming you for the accident to the injuries. And so if you are listening, I'd like you to just throw in a few comments as to what you think um, could have been done to prevent this this whole thing from happening to ensure that you in that situation were protected and your rights weren't uh, you, you were you still had your rights to to claim your personal injury so let's talk about the injury quickly um if a week goes by and you're unable to see any improvements on your neck back and shoulders what you decide to do is go to the gp and in uh, i'm basing it on um on a scenario as if we as if this happened in maybe the last few months your gp tells you that they can't see you because they're only seeing urgent queries you know covid happens they're only willing to do to see serious uh, people if, if you can minimize the amount of time you spend with the gp if you self-diagnose and take painkillers do that now in that time that's you've been taking painkillers your pain starts to get worse and it starts to radiate maybe down your legs and so now you're starting to feel legs um leg pain so you decide to see the gp and you book the appointment when you go to see the doctor you only tell them about the pain in your legs um and you don't tell them about the pain in your neck back and shoulders and because you know you don't want to waste their time and uh you can you can put up with the pain in your neck back and shoulders now would also be a good time just to to make note that it's you're not limited to physical injury. You can claim for psychiatric injury as well. Um, in this example, we've only used physical just because it's basically the most common kind of uh, injury that's occurred. But uh, claiming psychiatric injury in itself is something which is a whole series on. If you want to know more about psychiatric injury, I'll put a link in the description. Uh, or in the um, chat and Charlie can have a look or if you've got any questions speak to a solicitor about it or or ask me I'm more than happy to help but let's say you decide to see a GP so you book your appointment um, you've told them about the pain in your legs and uh, they make a note of it so to understand the, the process of a claim you have to understand what the burdens of proof are separately and there's two elements to it the first is the element of liability. Now, this essentially is how the accident happened and who's to blame for the accident. The second is causation. Now, causation, by definition, in fact, we'll come back to causation. Um, now, amongst other things, both must be proven in order to claim compensation. Uh, Today we'll focus on these two because they're the most common in practice that I see disputed from other from other insurance companies from defendants. Um, so, yeah, let's go back to the accident. Um, now, if we are talking about what you could have done in the situation of an accident, um, what I would be looking at firstly is was there any pictures taken? Now, pictures are huge because when pictures are taken you can see whether or not, in our scenario, whether or not uh, there was three or two or three extra people in the car. You can prove the damage to the vehicle. So if there's additional damage that Mr. X is claiming for, say he's claiming for the back end damage, and um, you know that only really the front end collided with your vehicle, then that picture would prove that that damage was already there. Or, or that he's claiming for damage which wasn't there 
and, and making an extra claim for it. Um, and as well, it proves the location. Now, remember in our scenario, there was a pothole where Mr. X has tried to avoid and he's came in and hit, uh, hit ourselves. Realistically, you want a picture of that pothole because that proves your story. And that's what it comes down to. Whose story is on the balance of probabilities more believable based on the evidence? So uh, pictures is a must. Uh, another thing that uh, is quite interesting to me that I found when people um, talk about these things is people are scared to take pictures of the other person. Now, as long as you're in a public area, you can take a picture of anything. If you're on a public footpath, um, you know, you, you can take a picture of whatever it is you want as long as it's within the public area. And even if you're on a public footpath and you take a picture of someone's house, there's nothing illegal about it. Um, but there might be some civil repercussions of it. And I don't advocate people stand on footpaths and take pictures of people's houses. It could come down to harassment, stalking, those kind of things. But just so you understand what what the law is, there's no harm in taking a picture of somebody because essentially that's going to prove who was driving at the time. And if this person isn't insured to drive and their insurance company gets a hold of that picture, you know, they can go back to their, their, insuring, their insured and say, look, really, this is your fault because you shouldn't have been driving in the first place. So pictures of the person driving, um, exchange texts. Now, you've exchanged numbers with each other. Always test the numbers. You don't know if the number you're getting is going to be real or fake. I always uh, like to say whenever you're exchanging a number with someone, drop your name, drop your insurance details in the text to that person and ask for the same back. If you see that that person's received it on their phone, you know that they've definitely got it. And if you receive it on your phone, you know that you, you've got that as evidence, really. If a person, I've came in, into situations where people have denied being involved in an accident and a text or a phone call from a person's number proves enough that that person was involved at that time. At the end of the day, why would you have a text from a random person with their details on if they weren't involved in an accident? It, it wouldn't happen. So try and get an exchange of texts or even a phone call, something to prove that that number is legit. Uh, get their insurance details if you can. If you can get their policy documents, even better, the policy numbers. Some people have it on their email addresses. You can ask them for it. Um, now, if you feel somewhat intimidated or or sometimes, you know, anger gets flared in these situations or uh, you know, people might resort to violence, call the police. If you ever feel threatened, call the police. That's even if they don't come out, what they will do is they'll make a log on their systems to say that you have called up. You've told me what happened in this accident. You've told me how many people's there. If the police don't come, that call is still there. That in the future, if anybody was to ever do what Mr. X has done in this scenario and try and make a fraudulent claim or, uh, you know, claim that more people were in the vehicle, that police log will form part of your evidence to show that what he's saying is untrue. So call the police, um, possibly call an ambulance if you feel like you need one. Uh, it's subjective to everybody whether or not they, they feel like they need to be seen by a um, paramedic. But if you do get seen by a paramedic, do not be shy in telling them the injuries that you're feeling at that time. Now, I'm not saying go over the top and tell them everything, you know, injuries that have been there beforehand. 
tell them the injuries that have been caused or, or that you're feeling at the time of the accident and get treated for that. And my personal favourite and the best uh, piece of evidence I think anybody can have, uh, and I would highly recommend everybody get one of these, is a dash cam. Um, a dash cam is basically a lawyer's best friend when it comes to road traffic accidents. Really, it's as much evidence as you need to prove who's at fault because the cameras don't lie. So, uh, yeah, you can get dash cams if you have a look on Amazon or Alfred's. They tend to fit them for you. It doesn't need to be something which is high-end or high-spec. Um, but, you know, the more high-end, the more money you pay for them, the more quality you get. You're going to be able to see registrations. You're going to be able to see faces more clearer. Um, but really, if you've got those details, as long as you can see who's to blame, it shouldn't really be an issue. Okay, so liability, we've talked about liability a bit, let's talk about causation. Now, to put things into perspective, um, let's say you had a dash cam and it caught Mr. X swerving and hitting him as well as all of the aftermath, him telling you that it's his fault. You know, you've got a high-end dash cam, so it's audio recorded, you can hear him say everything that uh, that he's saying and, um, you know, you see no passengers, no witnesses. So, Let's talk about causation and let's talk about what happens to Mr. X as a result of seeing everything he said. So causation by definition is the causal relationship between the defendant, which in this case is Mr. X, and the conduct and the end result. So the defendant is Mr. X, the conduct is his him swerving into your car, and the end result is, in this case, your, your injury claim. Now, how can it be proven? Well, the reality of it is it's it's all uh, an objective test. Had Mr. X not swerved into you, would you have been injured? Well, in most situations, we can look at it objectively. Now, if you've never had pain in a particular area, let's say in our situation, you've not, never had pain in your legs, and one day after the accident, you start to get pain in your legs, you can almost assume or, or make that link that because of the accident, the pain... Uh, in your legs has been caused. Now, this this is called the chain of causation. Now, that can be broken if, for example, you had an accident and that very same day you went on a bike ride and fell off your bike and injured your leg. Now, that can cause a potential break in the cause in the chain of causation because we don't know whether or not the pain in your leg has been caused from the accident or from you falling off your bike. But it's something to bear in mind and uh, it's something which can prove your injury. Most of the time, it's about consistency with your injury. You have to have consistent medical records and you have to have consistent medical reports. Now, that's the key word to take away from today. If you are claiming a personal injury um, from anything, things have to be consistent. In my, um, in my experience, a lot of the time where claims do fail is because people aren't consistent with what they're telling their GPs or their doctors. Um, and, you know, they, they could be saying that they have pain in their right hand to a GP and then they might forget and say that, you know, I'm starting to feel pain in my left hand. Or it could be a mistake. It could just be a lapse of, of memory. Um, or they could be genuinely feeling hand, pain in both hands. It's down to whether or not it can be proven. It's down to the consistency. Now, if you're found dishonest, uh, or or it's it seems as if you're exaggerated, 
And this will all be linked to discrepancies. So anything, like I said, if you've sent a payment left and it's in your right, um, this all comes down to whatever is the discrepancies in your, in your claim. Uh, as a general rule of thumb, um, it's not always the case, but the more consistent your medical records are, the more likely you are to succeed, unless you have good reason to explain why there are discrepancies in there. So what you tell your GP has to be accurate. Now, if we go back to when we spoke to the GP and we told him about our knees, uh, this has a number of consequences attached to it because we didn't mention the neck, back and shoulder. and so it's going to be very difficult to prove that you've injured or to claim for your neck, back and shoulder injuries. So what can you do to prove your injury claim? Well, a few things. Um, images is, is one. Really, if you've suffered some kind of cut, um, bruising, anything like that, something which shows on your on your body or um, yeah, something which can, can be seen, that's always a good piece of evidence to have. Um, Physiotherapy is also uh, good. If you've ever taken physiotherapy, then they will make a note of everything you've worked on, which areas you've worked on. Um, you know, if you've got pain in your neck and back and you want to rehabilitate, they'll make a note of it and these can be requested at a later date. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it's quite common. I see a lot of problems who have, sorry, I see a lot of people who have um, pain which exists in a certain area and after the accident they may say that that pain is attributed because of the accident that becomes a problem especially if you've told your gp about this particular area say your your lower back where you've had pain in your lower back and then you try to tell them that you this injury was uh, this injury has caused you pain in your lower back it won't go down well because that pain was already there unless that pain is a different kind of pain or unless you feel like it's worsened in some way then that is potentially something that you can look to claim for, but you would need to speak to a solicitor in order to establish it. Um, and, and if you do that, it also creates a defense for the other side, for them to say, look, these injuries were there beforehand, so we're not paying out for whatever injury you think, um, you know, you, you, that's been caused as a result of the accident. So let's quickly talk about Mr. X in this uh, situation. Um, well, if he's found fundamentally dishonest, it could basically mean that he's he's going to uh, potentially face jail time, potentially get bad credit, uh, has the ability to obtain a mortgage, will be listed on fraud databases. And uh, yeah, really, it's it doesn't look good for him. But this is a, quite a common thing when you're exa exaggerating your claim, when you're being dishonest about your claim. So my advice to everybody would be um, be honest, be transparent, and speak to a solicitor, speak to your insurance company beforehand. Anyways, I want to wrap this up because inshallah we'll run out of time. Um, if you're interested in, in wanting to know more, drop me a message, drop the page a message. Uh, tune in tomorrow, inshallah, I'll be discussing about accidents in the workplace. And uh, if you enjoyed today's structure, let me know, and I will go through a similar structure tomorrow as to what to do if you are involved in an accident in the uh, in the workplace. Um, Jazakal Khair. Take care. Islam.